I gotta tell you, that, uh, that never gets old to me. Um, if you're relatively new here, you should know that that story you just saw really is the heartbeat of this place. We believe that God has strategically placed us to leverage everything we have, our emotions, our energy, our experience, our story, our money, our time, our talents, so that people like Brad could come to know Jesus. And those of us that know him could grow and get more fired up about the mission of helping people come to know Jesus. Brad serves on our parking team. That was the title we gave them. They said, no, 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 we're not parkers. We're tone setters. And I thought, ha, these guys get it. They do. And so when, they, when you drive in and they're waving and stuff, they get what we're all about here. Well, today, I'm going to tell you a story from the pages of God's Word, the Bible, that for me is just one of the most fascinating stories in the Bible. So many times we get one view of something that happens to somebody in the Bible. But today, we're going to be able to look at a guy in the Bible by the name of the Apostle Paul, and we're going to be able to see what happened to him, what he went through, but then we're also going to kind of get the backstage view of what he was thinking about and processing as those things happened. Now, in order to get you set up for that, I've got to tell you a little bit about the New Testament world. Every once in a while, I hear somebody say, you know, our world today is kind of, well, it's kind of going to hell in a handbasket. Things are rough today, and, and we've got to get back to the way it used to be. And I, I understand those sentiments, and sometimes I feel the same way, but the New Testament world was very strange compared to our world. But it's becoming more, our world is becoming more and more like the New Testament world. For instance, here's, here's the deal. In the New Testament world, there were competing religious ideologies available in the marketplace. I mean, when you went throughout your day, there were radically different ideas about the way we're supposed to behave, what gods we worship, what we're supposed to do in worship to those gods. It was a very diverse, religiously cosmopolitan environment. And nowhere was that more true than in a city by the name of Philippi. It's one of the cities that the Apostle Paul is going to visit. It is a Roman city, uh, really just north of Greece, and it had some real peculiarities about it. One of the things that was interesting about Philippi was this. Everybody in the, in the world in the New Testament time had heard of the god Apollo or Apollos. And one of the things that Apollo had done with his great strength was he had killed the dragon or the python. And he did this because he was a special guy, and that dragon python had some special powers that could enable people to see the future. This was the belief that was commonly held. Well, in honor of Apollo, they had built a uh, temple to him in the city of Philippi. And in that temple was an oracle, a person who other people would go to so that that oracle could tell them the future. And that oracle worshipped Apollo and wore a python around her neck. And she would get into a religious trance if you would give her enough money, and uh, she would get into a religious trance, and then she would foretell your future. She would tell you what was going to happen to you. Uh, her title was Pythia. We get the word python from that, and you can see the connection. Well, this is one of the competing ideologies going on in the city of Philippi. Paul, on his second journey around the Mediterranean Sea to share the message of Jesus, visits that city. It was a peculiar city, and I thought it might help us to not only stand a little bit about the cosmopolitan nature religiously that was going on there, but to see a little bit of the geography that was going on. So on the screen behind me, this is the Gangitis River. The Gangitis River is the place that the Apostle Paul is going to go to early one morning on his visit to Philippi because he wants to go pray. And if you're a traveling Jewish person and you go to a city that doesn't have a synagogue, you'd have at least 10 men who were devout Jews in order to have a synagogue, then you would, as the Old Testament instructed, go to the river to pray. And he goes to this river, that's the actual picture, and he meets some women there. To and he begins to pray with them and talk with them and find out about their connection to God. 
Now, this river is right outside of the city of Philippi that's located, next picture please, located right here on your map. It's in the very due north area of the Mediterranean Sea there. You can kind of see that little square. Up there is the city of Philippi. You can see somewhat close to Greece. And a major battle was fought here in Philippi. Caesar Augustus wanted this city and he was battling Mark Antony. And uh, the city here at Philippi decided they would be loyal to Caesar before he became Caesar. He's trying to win that title. And because they were loyal and because he won the war, he awards everybody in the city full Roman citizenship. So if you lived in Philippi, it was just like you lived in Rome. If you had Roman citizenship, you had all the privileges. And so very famous people and very wealthy people and people who did great in military campaigns would come to the city. It was a tourist destination, if you will. It had the great temple of Apollo where you could get your fortune read. It had very famous people living there. There was a lot of wealth happening in and around that city. It would be a whole lot like uh, Myrtle Beach, I guess. Kind of like the Redneck Riviera. Isn't that what they call that area? And uh, you would go there and you'd spend your money. And they didn't have go-karts and stuff, but you'd go to the temple. You'd buy a little statue. You'd get your little pythons snake and uh, have your fortune read. Anyway, that's kind of, kind of the thing they did. And so there are a lot of commerce is happening. You can see it's relatively close to the sea, but strategically, militarily, it had a lot of important value because as this next per- picture will show you, the f- city of Philippi was built on top of a hill. There's the hill. And so from that vantage point, you could see all over the surrounding area. You could have a perfect view all the way out to the sea and see the ships. That's why there was such an amazing battle that was fought here. Well, because of all of its history and the famous people and the commerce and its strategic location on a road and near the seaport, there was a lot of business that happened. And the business happened in a place called the Forum. We would call it a city center. Here's what that looks like today, the ruins of that area. And this is where people would gather to do all of their conversating. You'd get up in the morning and go to the Forum and sell your wares. If you were an oracle, you would tell people's future. If you were a businessman, you'd do whatever you could that business people would do back in the day. And sell your, you know, your grain or whatever. Well, in this particular city, Paul has a unique experience because he goes to the forum, just like he did in every city, and he began to talk with people. He had already spoken with a lady by the name of Lydia at the river there. They had already had prayer. And for several days, he would go to the forum and he would talk about Jesus. He'd engage people, find out about their religious beliefs and customs. And one of the days as he was doing this, a girl begins to follow him, the very girl that is the oracle in the temple of Apollo. Pythia, would follow him, and she began to taunt him and ridicule him. Now, what she said was accurate, but the way she said it was troublesome to Paul. She began to follow him and his travel companions around, Silas and a few others, and he would, she would say to him, they talk about the son of the most high God. They're giving you the truth. You should listen to them. But it wasn't what she said. It was the way she said it. It was the way she engaged them and how she constantly would try to talk over them. Paul got very agitated with her. So he turned, and with the authority of Jesus, he cast out of her a spirit that was enabling her to see the future. That's what the Bible tells us. I had no reason to doubt that. And immediately her life is changed. She loses her ability to tell the future. Now, this is interesting. Because for this girl, it's not so much that um, this was her business, even though you had to pay her, but there were a group of men who were kind of like, we would call them pimps, but not for a sexual thing, that were kind of like her managers. And they got very upset at Paul. They got very upset because their lucrative business of fortune-telling right outside the temple and all the drama created with the writhing snake around the half-clad girl, all that's now gone. And she's free of that and free of their control. And of course, you know what that means, don't you? There goes the money. 
And here's the spiritual lesson for the day. If you ever want to make somebody mad, there's two certain ways to do it. Talk bad about their mama, you know, you know or, or take their money. I mean, either way, you can, you can upset these people. And that's exactly what happened to these businessmen. They are furious. They're not concerned about the little girl they were taking advantage of. They're concerned about their income. So they rush Paul and his travel companion Silas into a mock court, have a hasty trial, not under typical Roman law, which was very regimented and orderly and structured in justice, but very quick and hushed and, and, and hurried. And then they beat them with these little half-inch rods. They strip their back and they beat them. This is a situation Paul and Silas find themselves in, in the city of Philippi, the famous tourist city on the Mediterranean Sea. And I share you with this story because unlike Paul and Silas, we don't aren't traveling around, you're here, many of you aren't far from your home, and your back isn't bloody, and your feet aren't in stocks and chains. But I bet there are some folks here that would say with me that you know a little bit of what, what it's like emotionally to be doing the right thing, or think you're doing the right thing, and have not the right things happen to you. I mean, it just emotionally take you down what happened, since I just told you the history of what happened. Paul is following Jesus. Jesus has changed his life. Jesus said to Paul on a road to the city of Damascus when his name was still Saul and he was the bad guy killing Christians, he had said to him, now if you'll follow me, I'll change your life. I'm paraphrasing a little. And Saul, Paul, took it very personal and began to do just that thing. And he set out everywhere he went to share the message of Jesus. He's doing the right thing. And then God moves on his heart as he's in an area and he plans to make a left turn at the road and God comes to him and says, no, make a right turn and then don't go back into Asia, but move over to this other continent that we now call Europe. This is the first time a Christian goes to Europe to share the messages in Philippi, um, which by the way, we're all inheritors of this activity of Paul. The message of the gospel first goes to Europe because Paul follows Jesus and doesn't make a left, instead makes a right and goes to Philippi. He's doing the right thing. And he goes to the forum and he shares the message of Jesus. And he meets the ladies in the morning for prayer. And he sets the little girl free by the power of Jesus. He's doing all the right thing. But they find themselves in a court, mock justice, beaten and tried, feet in stocks, in a jail in Philippi. Not just in any jail, but they're in the inside jail, like the most secure, the high security place in the entire prison. If it were me, I'm just, I know you're more spiritual than me. But if it were me, I'd be having a bit of a pity party. I'd be asking myself, now God, I know I did the right thing. I know I followed you. I know I did what you told me to do. But see, what Paul was about to discover here again was that God likes to write our stories. We are calling that for this series, he likes to build our testimony. That's what your story of your journey with God is. It's your testimony. It's all that God is doing through you, to you, in you, and around you. And Paul's about to have his eyes opened to something here. And we, because the story is shared with us, are about to have our eyes opened. And so in your Bible, if you'd like to find where I am, Acts chapter 16, go there. If you don't have your scriptures with you on the screen behind me, Paul and Silas in prison. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, I see nobody turning, by the way. Thank you. Um, I know you're all on your little cell phones. Yeah, that's fine. All right. Uh, it's just the Bible. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. <laughs> little sarcasm there. Here's what it says. About midnight. We're going to pause right there. You know, a lesser preacher would just keep going. But uh, I read that phrase, about midnight, and here's what I think. I'm kind of reading this emotionally as well as just for the facts. And midnight's a rough time. And if you're going through something today, some of you are kind of like at the midnight of your event. 
at the midnight of your challenge. Some of you, your marriages right now are like at midnight, and it's dark and dreary, and you're not sure what's going to happen. I know there's some folks in the room who are there financially. You've been having a journey. Your day is lasting, and it's midnight, and it's dark, and you're not sure where it's going to go. Relationally, some of you are at midnight right now. Paul and Silas were literally at midnight in the inside jail. Backs are bloodied and feet are in stocks. They have every reason to have a pity party. They have every reason to be concerned, every reason to be somewhat frustrated that God who they're following has let them down. But the Bible tells us at midnight, Paul and Silas were, look what they were doing, praying and singing hymns to God. Now, I know what you're thinking. They're in the Bible. That's what people in the Bible do, right? They always do the right thing. But you don't understand, this is not the, the image that we're given. We don't get a, the Bible full of perfect characters. But in this particular case, Paul and Silas have tapped into something that I hope you'll tap into. It's the kind of thing that will help you as you walk your journey, as God develops your story and builds your testimony. It's a simple truth. It goes like this, that your happiness is determined on your circumstances. You win the lottery, you smile. The girl likes you back, you smile. You go on that special date, you smile. Cool things happen, you smile. That's happiness. There's, happiness is a good thing. I like being made happy. If you bring me gift certificates to Outback, I'll be happy. <laughs> I like being happy. Ha- nothing wrong. But they learned that beyond happiness, there's a thing called joy. Now, joy isn't determined by your circumstances. Joy is something that's happening inside of you that causes you to view your circumstances through the lenses, not just of your emotion, but for the follower of Jesus through the lenses of what God might be wanting to do. So Paul and Silas are walking, not in obscurity, not wondering, they're walking in confidence. God, we're doing what you've called us to do. We encountered that little girl, the little oracle, because you told us to encounter her. We went to Philippi because you directed us. And so, God, obviously, we're in your hands. And so the Bible comes to us and says that God can give those of us today who follow Jesus a joy that is unspeakable, one that we don't fully understand, can't pull it fully into words, and yet it's full of the glory of God going on inside of our lives. It can override our circumstances. And this isn't meant to simply be some positive thought that pulls you out of the doldrums of depression. It's meant to be a reality for us. That God can give us a joy and a peace and a comfort that goes beyond our circumstances where when you know that God has you in his hands, it affects how you view everything that happens in life. This is where Paul and Silas are. They're in the prison there in Philippi and they're singing and praying. And here's what the Bible says. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains became loose. Now this is a good day if you're a prisoner. This is a good day. They're happy and some of them are having some joy bubble up as well. Now I don't know before we get into what happened here what songs... Paul and Silas were singing. I think about songs sometimes because I'm a pastor of a church and we do songs every Sunday. And I have a little thought. I'd like them to sing the songs I like more frequently at the church I'm the pastor at. You would think they would. I mean, I'm the pastor. You would think that they would on occasion come to me and say, Ben, what are your favorite songs we're doing and all Ben favorite songs Sunday? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. The other thing I, I thought about, about singing and just, you know, kind of random thoughts here is, is that 
not only do they not pick the, like the, the favorite songs, they don't even sometimes play my favorite songs the way I like them to be played. And sometimes they don't have my favorite singers leading me in those songs. And sometimes the people that stand next to me can't sing at all. These are all random thoughts I have about singing that happen in a church setting. Now, Paul and Silas, because they had an inside joy happening inside of them, because their eyes and their ears were not focused simply on what was around them, but they knew something was going on inside of them, they were very convinced that God was committed to them. It affected the way they sang, the way they prayed, the way they experienced the prison and the beating and the dejection of those people in that mock court. For us, I think that there's a practical lesson here. Do you realize that when you come to church and we sing songs, that what we're really doing is singing to God? Did, did you know that? We're singing to God about God. So when you come here, I can't explain what other churches do, but when you come here, what we're trying to do is get you to focus and get us all to focus our attention, not just on what's going on around us, but to, as it were, look up and focus on Him. The word glory in the Bible is a word that simply means radiating. And we try to get you to focus on the radiating character of God, His love, His grace, His awesomeness, His goodness. It's one of the primary motivations for us singing hymns to God. That's what they were doing. Did you notice they were singing to God, not simply about God? That's what it said. And they were praying to Him. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. That kind of an attitude changes everything. Now, in their case, what literally happens at midnight when it should be the worst, when it it's like it's the darkest and you can't even bear the thought of going into another day. Their eyes and minds are focused on God and on their prayers and their singing to him. And all of a sudden, there's a powerful earthquake that opens the prison doors. And verse 27 tells us something interesting that begins to happen. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. If he didn't kill himself, they were going to kill him. I mean, it was a desperate time for the jailer. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Now the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Now here begins a great reversal. Paul and Silas are in prison and yet they're acting like they're free. And the jailer's not in prison. He's the freest man in the prison and he now is now acting like he's somewhat of a victim in change. And he throws himself before the prisoners. Can you catch the irony and the humor here? And he says, listen to this phrase, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, he might be talking pragmatically. What do I need to do to save my life? But I don't think that's all that's going on because when we're going to see what happens in a minute, he obviously understands something deeper here. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, Philippi doesn't have a lot of Christians. Paul's the first that we know of to get there. But Paul and Silas had spent days in the forum, in that marketplace, talking about Jesus and getting people to understand Jesus, so much so that one of the most famous residents of the city begins to follow them around and taunt them. That's how much they talked about Jesus. And I bet you, I bet you they're human like us. I bet that they wondered on occasion over the days that passed while they were in Philippi whether or not their words were ever taking any root, whether the seeds they were planting were falling on fertile soil. But they just began to keep talking about Jesus. Each morning they'd get up, go to the river and pray, come back to the forum and talk about Jesus when it opened. Stay there through the day, go back and stay at Lydia's house, one of the ladies that they met at the river. And then in the morning they'd go back and pray and then they would come back and talk on the forum about Jesus. But it looked like nobody was taking the bait. It looked like nobody was hearing. All this effort going into it, but it looked like nothing was happening with the effort. But here in this moment, 
something happens that reminds them very quickly that the effort they were giving in Philippi wasn't wasted. Somewhere along the way, the jailer heard, knew, understood something about Paul and Silas, that they had a message of salvation. And at his darkest hour, when he didn't know where else to go, he turned to Paul and Silas for help. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, I would love it if that happened to me every day. If people would walk up to me and say, oh, you're a pastor? Awesome. What do I have to do to come in relationship with Jesus? That's not usually what happens. Usually when somebody finds I'm not a pastor, here's the first thing they do. That, that cuss recently, in the last like 30 seconds, did I say a bad word? That, that, what, what have I talked about here? Did I tell a dirty joke? You can kind of see it in their minds going, oh, he's a pastor. Rarely does anybody ever walk up and say, what do I need to do to be saved? Here's something Paul and Silas understood. It's a part of testimony building. It's a part of the story of what God's doing in your life. You have a story, and one of the things that God's doing is is calling you to regularly plant seeds, to regularly share about Jesus and his work in your life with the people you meet, work with, go to school with, build relationships with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, if you have kids, to share Jesus. But sometimes we get discouraged because we don't get to see the fruit of that work. You know, Christian, all around you who get excited for a while and they pull back, Well, in this story, what we discover at the bare minimum is this, that those seeds that Paul and Silas had sown in Philippi for the few days there, in the forum, at the river, talking with people one-on-one, even though their external circumstances looked terrible, those seeds God was using. And at just the right time, he caused the seed to germinate in this jailer's life, so much so that at his darkest hour, he calls out, sirs, what do I need to do to be saved? Some of you parents, you've been praying for a kid. And you are investing and you're spending the time on your knees. And when God opens the door, you try to talk about it. And you watch your kids, it seems like, can be completely uninterested in the things of God. And you wonder to yourself, is it worth it? I mean, are they ever going to do the thing? Are they ever going to grab hold of the truth? Is the seed ever going to grow in their lives? Some of you are in a marriage that is a little loveless right now. And you're working and you're praying and you're hoping and you're trusting. And you're not sure if your spouse is ever going to move in the direction of a healthier marriage and a deeper commitment to God and each other. And you're wondering sometimes if it's worth it. You have a friend who's has a rough go and you've invested and you've invested. And you look at them and they take your advice and do nothing with it. And you're wondering if it's worth it. Paul and Silas would say to you, absolutely, it's worth it. Don't give up. See, we're called to be faithful planting the seed. We're not called to make the seed grow. Think about the farmer for just a second, if you would. Out of all the things you can do in farming, you can get good seed. You can do that. You got to buy it. You can buy good farm equipment to till the soil. You can be very judicious in selecting where to plant. You can be very, very diligent in bringing water and fertilizer to the soil. You can bury it at just the right height, at just the right time, in just the right scenario, with just the right amount of water and fertilizer, all the things you can control. But the farmer knows he can do a lot, but there's one thing he can't do is make that seed grow. So what he does is he does and she does the best they can, knowing that at the right time, God will bring it to fruit. He will make the seed grow. I'm saying to you that in your story, all these things are happening to you. People like you, they don't like you. They build friendships, they don't build friendships. They go out with you, they don't go out with you. You get into this school, but not this school. All this stuff is a part of the story that God is weaving in your life. And all through it, what he wants us to do is be faithful to scatter those seeds. That's what Paul and Silas did in Philippi. They had no idea what was at stake. But what's at stake here is a jailer's life is about to be changed. And an entire city is about to be revolutionized. 
If you had looked at them at 11.59, just before midnight, you'd have said, colossal waste of time. And there might be people in your life right now saying, colossal waste of time. But midnight hadn't come. And what it should have gotten worse, it got better instantaneously. And I'm suggesting to some of you that that's exactly what God's doing in your life. He's building in you an eye not to see simply your circumstance, but to let God bring joy to your life in the middle of your craziness. Young moms, you know a little bit about craziness, don't you? Got those young kids running around your house? I love little kids. Your kids, from a distance. They're awesome. I, I, I can't stand a baby crying. Jill and I were out shopping the other day, and we're in a store. And you would think that I have a little bit more compassion than this. But a baby started crying. I looked at my wife. I said, I'll meet you outside. I'm done. Just boom, done. Can't stand it. So I don't work in the nursery. I love your kids, but you know we'd be flashing your numbers up all the time every time they cried. Paul and Silas wondered if it was worth it at all. But it was worth it. Sirs, what do I need to do to be saved? Now, look at, we're going to go very quickly through these next four verses. Verse 31. They replied to the jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And your house? Verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house at that hour. I mean, immediately. It's kicking in now. The flywheel is turning. At that very hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Talk about a reversal of roles. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. I mean, they're in. They're all the way in. There's none of this waiting. I got to figure. No, they're in. And the jailer brought them to his house, out of the jail, bring them to his house, and set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole house. Now, they're just sowing seeds, and it gets worse and worse and worse. But when God decided the time was right, the doors open up. Those seeds mature. A jailer comes to faith in his whole house. Now, that would be a cool story, right? Great testimony, Paul. Awesome. You and Silas, faithful. But that's not all that happened. See, a few years later, Paul has continued his journey. He's left Philippi. And he writes a letter to a group of followers of Jesus in the city of Philippi. It's in your Bible. It's called Philippians. He writes them a letter years after this event. You just read how the church in Philippi began. And what begins with a little girl who's delivered... A few ladies by a river. Thank you, ladies, by the way. Some of you ladies, you understand emotionally the things of God. You know how powerful it is to get together and meet and talk. And when you keep your eyes and ears on Jesus, you guys can do powerful things. That's what happened in Philippi. And he meets with the jailer and his family and the entire household. That's the entire beginning of the church. And in just a few years, a few hundred followers of Jesus are there. They're so important that Paul takes time to write them a letter. And God thought the words were so important. They're preserved for us in the pages of our Bible in the book called Philippians. I want you to go to Philippians chapter 3 if you don't mind. I want to show you something really, really, really cool. I hear a few pages. That's awesome. Does my heart good. Does my heart good. All right, Philippians chapter 3. Here's what you're going to get here. Now, I just told you what's happening on the surface, kind of bird's eye view I was looking. But now we're going to be able to see what's going on in Paul's heart as he thinks about the people he's left in Philippi and a growing church there. As he thinks about all the work that God has done in him and through him and all that he wants to do in that life of that city, that very important city where a lot of people are going to pass through. And if there's a thriving church there, more and more people get to hear about Jesus. And that's the thing he cares the most about. See, Paul knew that God wanted to use his story. But here's the big point for us today. Paul also knew that it wasn't just about him. In fact, Paul knew that the story wasn't about him at all. It was all about Jesus. And whatever Paul could bring to the table was nothing compared to what Jesus could do. I think this is the kind of people that God uses. These are the kinds of people that God sets up for big, awesome things. They're the kind of people that will leverage whatever is in their control for the sake of the gospel. 
They will leverage it all. They'll leverage their relationships. They'll talk to people when God opens a door. And when he doesn't, they'll pray for God to open a door so they can share the message of Jesus. And they'll make sure that in their family routines, the things of God are elevated. So it wouldn't be unusual for them to regularly pray over their meals. And it wouldn't be unusual to find an open Bible laying on an end table somewhere. And it wouldn't be unusual if you picked up their iPhone to find that they're looking at version. And it wouldn't be unusual on their Kindle for them to be reading some theological book or for parents to have a meaningful conversation about how to better raise kids. And if you were to check their calendars, you would see that they've carved out time. If you were to check their checkbooks, you would see that they've carved out money for the sake of Jesus. This would be normal for these kinds of people to be used regularly from God. But at the center of all of that stuff they're doing, what they would know more than anything else is, is that at the end of the day, it's not about me. This is why I wanted to talk to you about singing for just a few minutes. See, when I read the phrase that Paul and Silas were singing hymns to God, it gave me pause. Because so often we come to get our sing on for us. You know, if I go to a concert, I'm not going with you to see Jimmy Buffett. I, I just don't care for the dude. It's just, you know, not, I'm not paying to see that. It's not what I want. I, I'll go see you too. That'd be awesome. I'm not going to go see Keith Urban. I know some of you like him. I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it. But see, when I come to church, I have to really be careful not to bring that same mentality to my worship, but not just in singing, to my entire engagement of God's work in this world, because everything in this world tells me it's all about me and me getting mine. But Paul and Silas knew, and the reason their testimony is so profound and still speaking to us today, they knew that you don't come and sing songs to each other and about each other and cool. You sing songs to God. You give him praise. It's all about him. So Paul tells us, in, Rome, or in Philippians chapter 3, some very cool things that we should keep in mind if we want God's story to grow in us and to use us powerfully. If we want to have those kind of midnight change experience, so in Philippians chapter 3, he begins writing these words. He says, now further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, if anybody has a right to talk about this, he does, doesn't he? Rejoice. I mean, he's beaten. His feet are in stocks. It's midnight. It, but he says, now rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a safeguard to you. In other words, I'm going to tell you the stuff I told you before. Over and over again, you heard me say these things. But I don't mind, because if you listen to me, it's going to safeguard you. It's, it's good news for you. And then he says, now listen to these words. Watch out for those dogs. Uh-oh. He's going to talk about some things to keep your mind on and some people to be careful of. He calls them dogs. Doesn't sound very Christian, does it? See, Paul's going to deal with something that's very important, and it's the challenge of every Christian are we going to focus on us and what we like and what we think is important? Or are we going to let God set the agenda? And for those people that focus on themselves, their religion, their tradition, and what they like, and they don't let Jesus speak louder than that, Paul looks at them and says, they're dogs. Now, why would he do that? Because he knows how important it is and how big the stakes are. For people who get so selfish in their own ideas and in their own journey and elevate their own traditions and they don't ask, what would God like to do here? So he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now the particular thing that he's dealing with here is a group of people that were Jewish in background but were becoming Christian and they were wanting to make sure that every person that became a Christian became a Jewish person first. So here we are in Philippi, not a lot of Jewish people. But they're starting to come to Jesus. Do they need to become Jews first? Now, in the Jewish faith, there was the strong tradition of circumcision. I'm not going to define that for you, but Greg will be up here after service to tell you all about that if you need to know what that is. And Paul said that some people, in an effort to be sincere, in an effort to take it seriously, they, were, they had good hearts. They're trying to elevate this religious tradition at the expense of the message of Jesus. 
Paul calls them dogs, mutilators of the flesh. Look at what else he says. Verse 3. Then he says, For it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Look, all this external stuff, all this stuff happening outside of you, well, it may have its place, and we can argue and debate about all that, but what's happening inside of you with Jesus and the role he plays, and he's sitting on the throne of your heart, that's more important. And as long as Jesus is first, we can debate this other stuff. But if the message and the mission of Jesus isn't first, that other stuff is a waste of time. Now, what all is he talking about here? Just circumcision? Well, that doesn't really relate to us today, does it? That's not all he's talking about. He says, though I myself have more reason or have reason for such confidence. Then he says, if anybody else or if someone else thinks they have a reason to put confidence in the flesh, this external stuff, this religious tradition stuff, he says, I got more reason. You want to talk about boasting and bragging to see who's better and who matches up and who has more reason to speak? He says, listen to me. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's right after the law. That's the way it was supposed to happen. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin. I'm an Israelite, but not just any. I'm from Benjamin. Benjamin was one of Jacob's favorite sons. Jacob's name changed to Israel. And Joseph and Benjamin are his two favorite sons by, by his favorite wife. And I'm a Benjamite. In other words, I'm at one of the best tribes. I've got it. I'm an insider. And then he says, I'm a Hebrew of a Hebrews. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm at the top. My dad and my mom have this tradition. And in regards to the law, I'm a Pharisee. We hear Pharisee, we think, ugh. But among Jewish people, these were people who were fervent. They kept the law. And as for zeal, as for emotion, I went so far as to persecute people that were against our tradition. As for righteousness, based on the law, I was faultless. I kept the rules. Paul's given you his pedigree, all the reasons why he could boast, all the reasons why he could be proud, all the reasons why he could hold to his religious tradition. But look at what he says, verse 7. And this is the message every church needs to experience. Some of you, by the way, before I read this, you went to churches and it left you wounded. Let me just make something clear to you. Most of the time when we're wounded in church, it's because the church wasn't focused on Jesus when they wounded you. They were focused on something else, a tradition, somebody's agenda, their personal gain. Churches that focus on Jesus tend to be healthy. They tend to give lift to people. They tend to have prison opening kinds of experiences. Churches that don't, and I don't know your entire experience, so I can't talk to that. But churches that wound people are the kind that get wrapped up in everything else. Whatever gains were for me, Paul says in verse 7, I now consider loss. Whatever all that stuff benefited for me, it's now in the loss column for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost everything. I consider them garbage all the pedigree all the knowledge all the information all the coolness all the things that other followers would look at him and go you're awesome you got it going on your parents are right went to the right schools got the right neighborhood all that stuff paul says is garbage that i might gain christ i have to pause here that word garbage there is one of my favorite words i don't know what version of the bible you're holding in your hands but some of them will say rubbish some of them will say dung uh, the word there in the, he, in the Greek in which the, uh, the New Testament was really originally written is skubala. It's not a pleasant word. It's the only place in the Bible that that word is found is right here. Um, it's the kind of thing that if you were a centurion in the Roman army, on the back of your chariot, you might have a bumper sticker that says, skubala happens. Uh, that's the word we're talking about here. <laughs> Paul says, 
that all the stuff of religiosity, all the traditions of man, all the heritage, all the knowledge, all the boasting is dung, dog dung, meant to be thrown out. It's nothing compared to the greatness of Christ. All of it. That I might gain him, to be found in him, to be considered righteous by the faith that he has. Nothing I do. So here's the point, Four Corners. You have a story, a testimony God wants to build. If you focus on your circumstances only, your story will get short-circuited. No, God has something going on inside of you and he wants to adjust your eyes and your heart. And when you come together in worship like this or you gather in your home to focus your attention not just on what's going on around you but what God wants to do in you and through you it'll change everything it'll change every relationship if every girl I had ever dated if my primary agenda was what would God like to do through me in this girl's life it would have changed everything if every girl that ever dated a guy that she should not have dated would have asked what would God like to do in this relationship it would change everything if every person who's thinking about getting married, before they ever said I do, before they ever took off their clothes, were to say, what would God like to do in this relationship? It would change everything. Before every check I write, before everything I do, what would God like to do? It would change everything. It'll change everything for you. And then the second thing God would like for us to know is it really isn't about you. See, that's what Paul's telling us here. I mean, you know deep down, because we talk about it a lot, that it's not about your religious tradition nor mine. You know it's not about the way we do things, it's the heart of the thing, but what we sometimes miss, and I just want to make sure we get it with great clarity today, is that not only is it not about the traditions, and all, it's really not about you either. It's not even about me. It's about Jesus and his mission in this world. Letting people know that he came and gave his life on a rugged cross, gave himself to a borrowed tomb, but isn't dead anymore. And when we put our trust in that, it changes everything. And when we let his agenda become ours, rather than bringing our agenda to the thing, it changes everything. It changes our marriages, our families, our churches. It changes our communities, our cities. It changes our jailers, our little girls, and our little boys. Entire cities are changed. Entire households are transformed. Let me ask you this. Where does the story of Jesus need to come up and be larger and louder than your story? Where in your life right now are you letting your story speak louder than the message of Jesus? That is the very point for those of us that are following Jesus where we need an adjustment. We need an attitude adjustment. We need a heart adjustment. See, it's a spiritual issue. It really is. God wants to come. The story of Paul reminds us that God wants to come and do his work in adjusting our attitude, bringing us joy, not just happiness, bringing us a change of heart and mind, causing us to sing to God. Not simply around it, not simply being in the environment, but focusing our attention up and letting that change everything. I think, friends, I don't want to be simple here, but I am pretty simple when it comes to the scripture. If you do that, I think more and more of us will see prison bars open in our lives. I really do. I think more and more of us will have the chains fall off. I think God will set this church up to run unfettered to everything he has for us. I think that's a pretty exciting time to be a part of God's church because we're going to see him do amazing things. And it's not just going to touch us. It's going to spill out and touch our houses and our entire communities. Why don't you grab your connect card? Let's take a few steps together as a congregation. So I've been talking a lot about Jesus, but I know this, that often we have people come through our doors every Sunday. You don't have a relationship with him. And here's what you need to know. It's not about you. You can come to Jesus and say, I'm an imperfect person. The Bible word for that is I'm a sinner. But God, I want you to be in my life. 
And so God invites you to accept him as your savior, that is the forgiver of your sin. And he invites you to accept him as the Lord of your life, that is the person who leads. Savior and Lord, forgiver and leader, same thing. Now if you'd like to do that, we'd like you to take your connect card and on the back there's a box marked A, you can put a check in that. It's an act of faith, just like praying a prayer. And in a moment, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer that simply says, God, I'm a sinner. I'd like to receive you as my Savior and Lord for the very first time. And if that's you today, you can check the box. In our first service, we had two people make a commitment to Jesus today. And uh, man, that just jazzes me up. Next step B is for some of us in this room. The truth is, is in a few weeks, Easter's here. And if there was ever a time that people are receptive, it's now. And those of us that are following Jesus need to leverage our story, our relationships, and our energy to inviting people to hear the message of a Savior who came and gave his life who died but isn't dead anymore, and who lives inside of the people who follow him, empowering them to walk God's way. So if you would be willing with me to begin praying for who God would have you invite to Easter, check the box. Let us send you a little reminder. You start praying. Say, God, who have you put in my life? What friends, coworkers that need to know your saving grace? So here's next step C. I wonder if there's anybody in the room that say, you know what? I have a story of what God has done in my life, and I'd like to share that as encouragement. If you would just go to our website, check the box, and then go to our website and say, hey, here's my story. It doesn't have to be very long. It could be very short. Here's the story of God working in my life where I've seen Jesus touch me. Just share that with us. It's such an encouragement, and we'll be um, asking you a little bit about that. Uh, if, you send, if you check the box, we'll send you a little information about that, asking you to get on the website and share exactly how to do that. And the next step, D, is one that's very special to my heart right now. We're getting ready to make a move as a congregation. In the next few weeks, we'll be going back most likely to the Rave Theater, and we'll tell you all about that in the weeks to come as we prepare to a permanent facility for us. And so this step is simply a precursor to are you getting your heart ready for that? If you're a hardcore Four Cornersite, all right, this is for you. Would you join with me and ready yourselves to commit more to help make the move happen? I don't know what more means yet. It probably for some of us means more time, more prayer, more money. But if you're interested in that, check the box. I'll send you what we know, keep you on the inside loop, and we'll begin preparing our hearts with the attitude of God. Whatever you want for us, that's what we're going to do. All right, let's pray right now about these things. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. God, thank you for stories like Paul and Silas. And, oh, God, I, I don't know that I could ever see myself being used the way you use those people. But that's not really what you called me to. You called me to their kind of faithfulness, to being faithful with what you've given me. So, Lord, I ask for myself and for my brothers and sisters in this room, make us faithful. Make us faithful. God, adjust our attitude to see not just our circumstances, but to see you in the middle and to ask this question, God, what would you want to do in me and through me with right where I am right now? God, I specifically pray for those that are making a decision to follow you, to accept you as their Lord and Savior. Their attitude is, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Take me, not by anything I do, but by your grace. I want to follow you with my life. God, as we get ready for Easter and for this move, Use this group of people whose minds are turned towards you to do all that you do through us in this city. We pray it in the powerful and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen.